0: Everybody welcome to another episode of the Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss and as always. I want to say thank you so much to each and every single one of you for tuning in, logging on and just hanging out with me and my special guest on this episode. As always, I know that you have really busy days going on and and you know, trying to get away for just a little while to listen to a podcast is not always the easiest thing to do. But again, I want to tell you how much I and the entire team at TCG really appreciate y'all and the support that you've given us uh, as we continue to roll out these episodes. Today, I get to welcome a really special guest to the podcast. Her name is Gina Singleton, and I've known Gina for several years now. Uh, She is uh, quite an extraordinary attorney and really a neat, neat person that I've gotten the pleasure to. Uh, really get to know over the last several years. And Gina is a member in general counsel with Brennan, Mana and Diamond. And she's a member of the firm's executive committee and serves as its general counsel. Uh, Gina has a national healthcare law practice focusing on healthcare operational matters, including state and federal regulatory compliance, healthcare transactions, healthcare policy, public health initiatives, corporate law, and business legal strategy. I could go on for probably another 20 or 30 minutes about all the incredible things um that Gina does in her practice each and every single day and I could probably brag on her about you know graduating summa cum laude and all the achievements that she has um but I think I'm going to let her knowledge of this subject that we're going to take on today just kind of speak for itself. So Gina welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. I know you're so busy and we're doing this one day prior to Thanksgiving. So, I know you probably have a lot of other things you'd rather be doing than sitting here talking to me on a podcast about what? Advanced practitioners.
1: Hey, Sean, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. So, there's so much going on in the world of healthcare and You know, the landscape continues to change on us. Uh, Right when we feel like we have an understanding for, you know, what government expectations are or what their plans are uh, for rolling something out, they always find a way to surprise us with either a pivot at the last moment or additional regulations or guidance documents or, more often than not, a lack of guidance where they kind of push something out and say, you figure it out. And as an attorney, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that can be quite challenging for you and for your clients.
1: I will say that healthcare law is never boring because it's always changing. Um, I believe it's the number one regulated industry in the country. So there's always something new to learn. And I will tell you, the past two years being in the middle of a pandemic I have made those changes move even more rapidly as we saw an overnight shift to telehealth and telemedicine. Um, We are dealing with provider burnout. And I'm actually seeing, we talk about surges, right, with the pandemic. Well, I've seen a surge of advanced practice registered nurses, such as nurse practitioners and physician assistants, starting their own businesses, starting their own practices. So I think the landscape is changing very rapidly. And of course, we have the new position fee schedule that was just released earlier in November that's going to bring about more changes also.
0: Yeah, it definitely will. And you know, it's interesting, you bring, you brought up a really good point. I tell people this all the time and and they kind of look at me and they're like, really? You know, healthcare is the most regulated industry outside of nuclear. Uh, I don't know any other industry that has the number of regulations that we have, but more importantly, the speed in which things are changing, and not just that, the complexity of the laws. You know, I I, I try to tell people all the time. One of the most important lessons that I've learned, and I and, and I'm grateful that I learned it very on in my career, is that if you need an attorney in healthcare, you gotta hire one who is healthcare centered, because finding somebody who does, you know civil law, family law, you know, real estate law, that's just not going to cut it when it comes to healthcare because of the complexity of the rules. Do you, do you find um, clients transitioning over to you because they engaged with another attorney who maybe said, yeah, sure. I can, I can help you with that. But you know, only to find out after spending thousands of dollars that that attorney really wasn't wasn't taking them down the right path or didn't have the requisite skills necessary to be able to guide them in the right way.
1: That does happen. And it's really unfortunate because for the client, there's the financial aspect of investing money and having to potentially start over or fix something. But there's also the time aspect of people want to get their projects off the ground. And it gets delayed if you have to stop midstream and change course again. We also find that a number of attorneys um, are self-aware and realize that there's a massive amount of regulation um, that, that sits in the healthcare space. So so we partner with other attorneys also when they need help.
0: Yeah, that's good. And that's one of the things that I've come to really appreciate about BMD is, you know, the collaborative approach that y'all take um, to working not only with other firms, but to also engaging with experts, subject matter experts, you know, to be more precise and allowing, <clears throat> excuse me, those individuals to really play, you know, a, a key role in helping you all to be able to, you know, develop a proper defense, to develop a a, a proper strategy for, you know, ensuring uh, a, a culture of compliance within those organizations and, you know, an awareness, you know, as to what the requirements are. So that's one of the neat things about, you know, BMD, as I said. So, you know, you you brought up the fact that you know CMS released the 2022 physician fee schedule, and as part of that, and I know you know your your practice spans across all healthcare, but I know one of the areas that you have uh, a, a lot of experience and, and a lot of expertise is in dealing with advanced practice uh, uh, nurses, right? Physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and and really understanding, you know what what difficulties they face as healthcare providers and the scrutiny that they sometimes fall under. Um as part of the 2022 physician fee schedule rule, um there were several things that have changed for uh PAs. Why don't we why don't we talk a little bit about that? Go ahead, please. Sure,
1: sure. I think probably the most notable is Uh, Medicare having this realization that physician assistants are actual direct providers, that they're not just ghost providers underneath the physician, but that they are doing a lot independently and autonomously. So Medicare has recognized that in their 2022 fee schedule uh, by giving physician assistants more autonomy in how they can bill under Medicare. They can now assign their benefits to an employer. They can bill directly, which they couldn't do before for Medicare. Um, now, you still have to have that supervision or collaborative agreement, depending on what your state is and what the requirements are. You have to remember that's all state-specific, um, but but you're seeing more more autonomy for them, and they're being given more latitude in their practice when it comes to billing.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so important, right? Because, you know, similar to most um, physicians and nurse practitioners, you know, who already had that access to direct payments, you know, um... The, the physician assistants, for whatever reason, didn't. Um, but the majority of PAs are, are now going to be able to maintain their current, you know, W-2 employment relationships with reimbursement for their services continuing to flow to their employers. Um, and I think that's really important because the ability to reassign their benefits and to direct bill for their services is so critical. Um, I
1: had a really unique experience early on in my practice with the nurse practitioners, and I think that this is starting to spill over into the physician assistant world also. And in 2007, when I was hired as general counsel for a trade association that represents nurse practitioners in Ohio, um, we realized that almost none, or maybe even no, payers were paying directly for nurse practitioner services. They always had to bill under the physician, which is dangerous. I mean, it's difficult to document. Maybe you don't meet all the requirements to bill that way. Um, So I had the the opportunity to go out and meet with all of the insurance companies around the state of Ohio and help them change their policies so that nurse practitioners could become direct billing providers, as well as recognized as primary care providers when it's appropriate or specialists depending on, on their work. Um, So so that's neat. But what I found in that is that there's a foundational issue. None of the payers will move until Medicare moves. Everybody bases their policies on what Medicare does. So I think what's going to happen is we have physician assistants. Now that Medicare is um, modernizing their billing rules regarding physician assistants, I think that we'll see um, physician assistants have greater ability to practice within their scope.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a great point, you know, and and I tell people all the time, you know, Medicare really is the gold standard and and payers typically don't move on something until Medicare does first. Now, you know, when it comes to investigational or experimental services, uh, that's one area where I find Medicare to really be lagging uh, behind the commercial payers. The commercial payers seem to be way out in front. Of setting medical coverage guidelines or local coverage determinations when it comes to payment for services that they still consider to be investigational or experimental. And, you know, Medicare lags behind in that, oftentimes resulting in people going, well, you know, Medicare's absent the policy, so I guess it's okay for me to, you know, to bill for that, not realizing that the absence of a policy means that. Medicare doesn't have coverage guidelines for that, and as such, you shouldn't be billing for those services, because once they, from a statutory standpoint, once they put that policy in place, the clawbacks can be devastating. Um, I have a case right now, as a matter of fact, it just actually came to me uh, yesterday, and it is a, a, a group that actually employs uh, a number of uh, non-physician practitioners, PAs and nurse practitioners, but they were uh, providing amniotic fluid as a treatment for muscular skeletal injuries or diseases. And the problem is CMS issued a Q code through one of their subcommittees, but never issued a local coverage policy or a local coverage article or national coverage determination and now this provider is facing a 1.6 million dollar refund being demanded by the unified program integrity contractor and you know that's what i try to tell people all the time the absence of a policy does not mean you've got free reign to build this stuff it's not the wild wild west
1: Absolutely. You, Medicare, yeah. Medicare is very prescriptive in what they'll allow you to bill for and how you can bill for it and what requirements you have to meet. And they get very unhappy if you don't meet those requirements. And I will tell you what happens is people will be billing for years and they won't even realize that they're making a mistake. And that's why these become such big problems. It's not the one off. Hey, I billed wrong one time and we're just going to reach right. it. It's that we have a pattern of behavior that either no one knew about or we just disregarded. We've seen it both ways. Um, We've seen it happen where a practice maybe doesn't have a strong billing and coding staff or the providers try to bill for themselves, which usually turns out to be a mess. Um, They really need to have an expert helping them. Um, Or we see the situation where somebody decided that they could interpret the policy or guidelines broadly enough to kind of squeeze it into what they want it to be. Um, And you have to be really careful about that because it it adds up very quickly and people make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, I'm just a little shop. This will never happen to me. And that's not true. We've had solo practitioners and solo practice who have gotten in trouble as well as very large multi-specialty groups. It's all across
0: the board. It is. And that's such a great point because I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your specialty is. And it doesn't matter how many providers you have in your group. Because the government and their contractors resort to data mining, they're looking for patterns. They're looking for aberrants, they're looking for outliers, and that's how they know when, where, and who to actually target for a review. It may not be an investigation. It may start off as something as simple as a probe audit. And you know, as a result of that probe, you know, you had either a higher sustained error rate, which convinced the government that they need to take a closer look. The MAC decides that they're going to send it over to the Unified Program Integrity Contractor, or to the Recovery Audit Contractor, or to, this, you know, the CERT Program, the Comprehensive Error Rate Testing, or to one of, you know, a number of organizations that audit on behalf or investigate on behalf of CMS. And <clears throat> that's where you find you know these audits expanding, and that's where, to your point, you find these extrag you know extravagant uh, overpayment demands. You know, based on an extrapolation that started as a 10 or 20 claim audit, and now it's turned into a 1.2 million dollar or 1.6 million dollar, or and, and and to your point again, a lot of small physician practices they look at and they go, you know, Sean, when you talk about a seven figure or eight figure overpayment. That, that's not happening to physician uh, to small physician practices that's that's the large groups that's the hospitals and that's not true well and there's
1: also the fact that there's there are criminal penalties i mean we're, it, money's one thing but there's potential jail time and we've had numerous cases where people have faced indictments um because of improper billing practices now there is a flip side to this and the flip side is just because you receive an overpayment notice doesn't mean that that's the amount you need to repay, because there's an appeal process. Often those audits are wrong. We've had numerous occasions where clients have brought us the overpayment notice, and a maybe they triggered an audit because the type of practice they have only bills a limited set of codes, that because it's a very specialized niche right? Like it's not even a very broad practice. Or two, maybe the audit is just wrong. It does happen. Um, so so don't go. Running to write a check right away, really take the time to engage your team of experts and and make sure that um, that what you're doing is correct. Because the other thing is you don't want to become the low-hanging fruit where all of a sudden you just write checks left and right and all the audits are wrong and, and you've just dug a hole for yourself. But But there is an appeal process. And we find numerous times that clients are successful or at least partially successful in that appeal. And that can be material to the amount you have to repay.
0: Yeah, that's such a that's such a great point, because, you know, uh, you know, I get I get to engage with various members of BMD. And, you know, it's 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 always. It's always incredible to be able to watch you and your partners um, engage in these recoupment uh, arguments that transpire between not just, you know, CMS and the practices, but the commercial payers as well. Uh, you know, I've been <clears throat> working on just one, and, and and let me just share this real quick. You know, just one client, we have now had to do eight administrative law judge hearings in just the last few months for this one provider, and and it was a small provider group, and you know we we have now argued in front of i think it's five or six judges in 8 ALJs all for one provider which was so infuriating because <clears throat> it was all the same issue why not just leave the entire appeal with one judge and let that judge because what we have found is several of the judges have ruled in favor of you know, the client, you know, uh, for the arguments that we've made. And there's been one or two judges that disregarded, because again, these are de novo, right? So they don't have to consider any other rulings or any other, you know, precedents that have been established anywhere. And, you know, we've had two judges who have completely disregarded the facts and, you know, ruled against us, which they were small small cases, but it's still an aggravation because now we have to go beyond the administrative law judge level to the departmental appeal board, right, to the DAB, and we have to submit all of these other, you know, wholly favorables for our client, and, you know, and nobody likes to, you know, go against the judge because, you know, you're going to have to deal with them at some point down the road, and You know, now, now you're going above their head to say, you know, they're wrong and no judge wants to be told they're wrong. So really, really interesting. But I want to, I want to see, there's so many, so many things, right. That we can talk about because, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, CMS is like a giant octopus with all these tentacles coming off of it. And, you know, there's so many areas that, you know, you start talking about, you know, um, Non-physician practitioners, and it leads into all these other discussions and all these other things. But let me let me bring it back um, because one of the other uh, changes that CMS made, and it's a significant change to the longstanding policies, was tied directly to the um, split or shared evaluation and management services. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and and what that change is and and how people can be aware of that and prepare for that?
1: Sure. So, in the 2022 fee schedule, I think that Medicare was trying to simplify the rules, but they may have actually created an audit risk. Um, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but but there is an audit risk to this. So, the the biggest thing that I noticed with the split in the shared services um, billing changes is that both the physician and the nurse practitioner, for example, if they're working on the same the same matter, um, they now have to do 50% of the work in order to bill as split or shared. Otherwise, whoever provides more than 50% has to bill under their number and the other person doesn't get to bill. So my question is, well, how on earth are you going to split a procedure 50-50 every single time and be able to prove it and document it? Um, so I think there's an audit risk there because I just practically don't know how um, you, you can do that without leaving error, I guess, room for error or room for question. So I thought that was really interesting. So I'd like to hear your thoughts even how do you document something like that?
0: Yeah, you know, that's 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 a great point. And <clears throat> you're right. You know, they they indicate um that it's, you know, 50-50, right? But what they talk about really, and if you read the definition, they call it a substantive portion is the actual term that they use, right? And they go on to say, for 2022, a substantive portion of the service by a physician is defined as, one, the physician personally performing either the history exam or medical decision making in its entirety, or two, the physician spending, to your point, more than half. So it's not actually 50%, right? It's actually, they're saying more than half of the total time by both the physician and the PA or NP on the face-to-face and non-face-to-face patient care activities. So, one of the things that I've been talking to my clients about especially those who are institutions where um or or specialties like rheumatology or orthopedics or cardiology or GI where in these subspecialties they utilize a lot of non-physician practitioners to make their rounds for them in the hospital. <clears throat> if if the physician is looking to take credit for that, then they need to create an attestation to say something along the lines of, um, I spent greater than 50% of the total face-to-face time engaged in this patient encounter, which includes the performance of the history exam development of the plan of care in conjunction with the non-physician practitioner, in addition to the review of labs imaging. So, you know, really to your point, I think CMS made this harder um, because, you know, even though they were calling it an administrative simplification, there's nothing simplistic about it. And in actuality, you know, creating a phrase like that or an attestation like that where it's going to be, and and you know as well as I do, right? Physicians, they they want that phrase because they want to click and, and you know, they want to point and click in their EMR and drop that statement right into their uh, progress note for the patient. And what that leads to is cloning. Because if every single encounter says, I spent greater than 50%, So I've been telling clients, you got to be careful about this. You got to use it sparingly. You know, I've had some, you know, clients say to me, this is ridiculous. What am I supposed to do? Start stop time? And my answer has been no. You just need to be able to demonstrate through the work that you've performed that you've done a substantive portion greater than 50% is really subjective, right? Because I mean, you know, it's going to be dependent on and I think this is an argument as an attorney that you would probably make during an audit, right? Whereby, you know, if an auditor said it doesn't appear, cuz I love how they say that. It doesn't appear that the provider, the physician spent greater than 50% of that total time. I mean, that's so subjective. How can somebody make that that type of determination.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, unless you're actually standing there watching the procedure or visit happen, you have no way of knowing who was there 50 percent or more of the time. I do think that this is going to be a hot button audit issue. I know the OIG puts out its work plan every year. My hunch is this will be on there within a short amount of time.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. And and there's a few other uh, requirements to the physician's ability to bill a service as a split shared uh service under their name or under their NPI number. Um and and they're pretty straightforward. The first is that the physician, MPA, or nurse practitioner must work for the same group. Can't can't be a um a uh, a provider of another group. It has to be a W-2, a 1099 uh relationship, just as it always has been for incident two billing and split shared services. Ah, uh, second to physician in PA or nurse practitioner must see the patient on the same calendar day. I, I know you've got a big advanced practice uh, uh, group, and I've seen this a number of times. Uh, what about you? Where you know the PA sees the patient today, and the doctor doesn't, the physician doesn't actually see them today, but they come in the next day, and then they try to build that as a split shared service. Have you seen that?
1: It does happen, and it's. It's not appropriate under these rules, right um and I, I think that's a good illustration for the split shared service billing as well as um, thinking about things such as incident two billing for the office visits. These types of billing are hard to do they're not yeah. easy there's an extensive list of requirements for each of them, and people think that they they're going to bill for example a nurse practitioner often gets paid 85% of what the physician does. So the idea is, well, we're going to bill the, N- the NP under the physician because then we can get paid 100%, right? We get the extra 15 percent But they don't realize that you have to meet all of these requirements. There's a whole laundry list of requirements for each of those situations. Um, and and it's it's difficult. And it also brings up the idea of if you have a physician assistant or nurse practitioner And you're only billing as shared or split billing or only billing as incident two, are you truly using that advanced practice provider to the full extent of their scope? I mean, there might be better ways to utilize them.
0: You know, that's a great point. Uh, And before I get to these last couple, you know, that's that's a huge point, right? Because um, for me, the ability to employ PAs or nurse practitioners means that a physician should be freed up to be able to do more extensive, more heavy RVU type services, right? More new patient visits, more in-office procedures, more days in the OR or at the outpatient surgery center, right? Things that are going to be generating more RVUs for that provider. (coughs) Excuse me. And one of the things that, I tell people all the time, and I see this time and time again, and and, and I want to get your take on this, when there's an investigation by the Office of Inspector General, or there's uh, the potentiality of either a civil or criminal case with the Department of Justice, I find a lot of the FBI agents and or the OIG agents that were involved in the investigations Speaking to the medically impossible day, where they're saying there's no possible way Sean Weiss, MD, could have seen 80 patients in one day, and they're not taking into account the utilization of these non-physician practitioners. Have you run into cases like that?
1: Sure, that does happen, and I think that might be a product of the fact that they get data, right? They, they have data. They don't really know anything about the practice or how the practice works. They just get the data that gets pulled from the algorithm that's run through the computer system. Um, so they're looking for outliers, and if something looks like an outlier, that's what they base their, their assumptions and their course of action yeah. on.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great point. So the last couple will talk about the fact that the service must be performed in a hospital, facility, or hospital outpatient office. And finally, documentation in the medical record must identify the physician and non-physician practitioner who performed the visit, the individual who performed the substantive portion of the visit. So not only does your documentation have to be complete and accurate, it has to identify the individual who performed the substantive portion. Which is where I think that attestation comes into play but from my perspective, you know what do you think about this <clears throat> when you're talking about 85 percent of 80 percent right because that's that's how these um, billings are paid for uh, under a PA or an NP's NPI number right 85 percent of 80 percent versus 80 percent of 100 percent of the allowable a lot of times, that's Trump change. We're talking 10, 15, maybe $20 for an encounter. Is, is, in your mind, is the risk reward really there to bill everything as an incident to and or a split shared service?
1: I don't think so, because if you're truly utilizing your advanced practice providers to the full scope of their practice and allowing them to practice how they are trained and educated to practice, you will more than wake up that, that amount. Um, so, so I think it's better to let them practice like they've been trained to practice because they, I think that will only help the practice and it'll keep you out of billing trouble. I know for incident two, for example, people are always shocked when we tell them, well, if you're going to bill incident two, you do know that the physician needs to be on site when that happens, right? In the office suite. And they're shocked. They're like, well, what do you mean? We never do that. I don't have to have them here to practice well because billing rules are different than your scope of practice rules. And people get in a lot of trouble with that because the physician needs to be out doing surgeries and, and at the hospital and such. And it might make sense to have a nurse practitioner doing other activities or the physician assistant doing other activities simultaneously. So if you're going to have to have the physician sitting there in the office suite at the same time, it, it may not make sense. It may not even be practical for your practice.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And you know one of the other things that I want to make sure that we convey to our listeners is the fact that the changes that we're talking about to the 2022 physician fee schedule, um, these apply only to Medicare. They do not apply to Medicaid, and they do not apply to your commercial payers. Um, And and remember that you know Medicare regulations do defer to Gina's point. Uh, they do defer to state law. So if state law or regulations prohibit a PA from receiving direct payment, those restrictions would have to be removed before Medicare will direct pay PAs in that state. So just be aware of that. And there's, there's one other significant aspect to the billing of these services. <clears throat> so even though we're talking about 2022, in 2023, beginning in January of 2023, only time, folks, listen to this, only time will be used to define a substantive portion of care, which means the health professional who spends the majority of time providing care to the patient is the one under whom the services should be billed. Because keep in mind, for services that are already defined as time based, such as critical care and discharge management, the substantive portion of care can only be determined based on which healthcare professional spent more than half the combined time providing care to that patient. So, folks, time is going to play a significant role, as it already does in, as I said, critical care and discharge management services. But in 2023, it's going to play an even more significant role. So, you know, make sure you're you're you know you're keeping an eye out for potential uh, uh guidance changes or or additional guidance documents that are being released. So Gina, there's some other aspects of the um the ability for PAs to render services, and one of those happens to be under behavioral health flexibilities. Can we talk a little bit about that?
1: Can you kick it off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I am of not sure. I, I know telehealth has changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, did you want to talk about that? Yeah. Start- yeah. We'll let's, look-
0: let's talk about it from a telehealth perspective, and, and we, okay, can we can weave the there, behavioral health is- into it.
1: Yeah, this is all providers. Actually, in the 2022 fee schedule, um, Medicare has adjusted their rules for behavioral health visits um, to allow for audio-only modalities instead of requiring video and audio both. And I think that's important because we have a lot of people who may not have access to video, but they need those vitally important mental health services. And that applies to everybody.
0: It does. And, you know, and one of the th- and and to your point, because you started talking about the pandemic, and you know, based on the toll that COVID has had on and continues to have on um, the behavioral health and mental health communities, uh, CMS finalized its proposed behavioral health flexibilities that now makes it easier for Medicare beneficiaries to access needed behavioral and mental health services from not only physicians, but now PAs, in addition to certain other healthcare professionals. And what it does is, you know, it increases access largely uh, by expanding the ways telehealth can be used to provide behavioral and mental health services. Specifically, CMS is now going to include a patient's home. so important. They're going to include a patient's home as an allowed originating site for mental health services after the end of the public health emergency. Now the question becomes, when the heck are we going to see the end of this pandemic?
1: That's a great question. If I had a crystal ball, I would let you know we're going on into two years here, which is unbelievable. But I will tell you, Sean, that one of the interesting things about the pandemic is I think a lot of people had a lot of time to kind of reprioritize or, or they were in healthcare and and that triggered the desire to reprioritize. So I have seen so many physician assistants and nurse practitioners who have wanted to start their own practices. And I will tell you, behavioral health is one of the top areas because they want to do behavioral health telemedicine practices. Right. Um, And there's some key compliance issues that I, I think they need to be aware of that come up from time to time. One would be on the billing side, making sure that you meet all the requirements for billing. But then two, people need to, I often get the question of, well, do I have to be licensed just in my state or do I have to be licensed in every state where I see patients? And the general rule of thumb is, and people are often surprised by this, you generally need to be licensed in the state where your patient is sitting, And if you're not, you have a compliance issue potentially with the Board of Nursing or the Board of Medicine, depending on what type of provider and and who governs them. Um, but, But that's one of the top compliance concerns that we've seen coming out of these telemedicine practices
0: that people are starting. That's such a great point, because I think what people take into consideration are the 1135 waivers that were issued at the beginning of the pandemic, whereby they said, we're going to waive the licensure requirement across state lines if you're rendering telehealth services. But keep in mind, when those 1135 waivers expired, that meant that all of those flexibilities went away. And now, yeah, go ahead, please.
1: Now, let's say the other thing that happens, Sean, is people think they just have a licensure issue at that point. But if you aren't appropriately licensed, it creates a billing issue, too, because that's usually one of the conditions of billing.
0: That's right. That's such a great point. And and one of the other points that Gina made was um, with respect to the allowance of audio-only services, and, and that's a big part, because CMS is going to allow certain audio-only mental health services that could be provided to beneficiaries located in their home if the beneficiary is unable. So there are conditions attached to this, right? If the beneficiary is unable or does not wish To use a two way audio visual technology. And beyond that, they actually authorize rural health clinics and federally qualified health centers, so RHCs and FQHCs, to provide mental health visits via telemedicine. And that's another area that to me, you know, I I really commend CMS for recognizing the need, the desperate need in these rural communities where access to behavioral health and other types of specialties is not readily available. And some of these folks who are unable to ambulate or they're unable to leave their home because they struggle with autoimmune issues um, and and they're scared, you know. Listen, a, a very good friend of mine, um, you know, here we are almost two years into this thing and, and we're on that, you know, hopefully that down curve. I mean, he just called me two days ago and he's like, you're never going to believe this. I've got freaking COVID. He's like, and I don't understand it. He goes, I had my first shot. I had my booster shot, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get into the whole debate about, you know, natural immunity versus vaccinations. But I mean, you know, here's another perfect example of a guy who's 50 years old. He's a Brazilian jujitsu jitsu you know uh, black belt master i mean guy's in phenomenal shape you know vegetarian um you know does all the right things and bam got hit with covid <clears throat> but you know the, the the good thing thank gosh for him is that you know he um you know he said the worst thing that he has right now from a symptom standpoint is that it feels like he just has a really bad head cold and you know he's in the state of florida and I'll I'll give Ron DeSantis a tremendous amount of credit for handling this pandemic the way he did by setting up these monoclonal uh, clinics all across the state. The same day that my buddy was diagnosed with COVID, within an hour, he was back at a monoclonal clinic and he got those four injections. He hung out for 30 minutes, right? They give you one in the left arm, one in the right arm, one in the left belly, one in the right belly. You hang out for 30 minutes. They give you a granola bar, a mask, and a bottle of water. And as long as you don't have any adverse reactions, you go home. And he called me and he goes, Here I am, four hours later. And he goes, I literally feel like a phoenix rising from the fire. He goes, It's unbelievable. So yeah, you know, we're still seeing some of this stuff. And and that's why I think, you know, the, the telehealth is so important um, to be able to especially reach these uh underserved areas, these rural areas as well. Um,
1: Absolutely. Telehealth here to stay. It really <laughs> had its advent at the beginning of the pandemic. I think people have been pushing for a long time to try to adopt telehealth, but, but like the perfect storm when you have a pandemic and people don't want to leave their homes or can't depending on their situation. But I think all of this, Sean, kind of can be brought together by some some key considerations for our listeners. The idea... Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, you brought up I think you coined this phrase, the idea that your compliance program needs to be a living, breathing document, right? An LBD. So I think that this is a perfect opportunity to revisit all of your compliance policies. Hopefully you have one. If you don't have one, please get one as soon as you can. We do find providers who don't have one because those policies and procedures, if you truly make them living, breathing documents, they they can save you a lot of hassle later on. Um, at the very least, they can help take away intent arguments if there's some sort of criminal accusation related to billing. Um, And then it can also be used as a mitigating factor on the penalty side to show that this is our policy, this is how we do it. It documents our procedures. Uh, So it can only help you. So I would urge you, please consider it whether you be a physician practice or whether you're a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant who's opened their own practice. It's so important that you have that compliance plan in place.
0: Yeah, that's that's such a great way to bring this all together because at the end of the day, what every investigation organization is looking for, what every prosecutor is looking for, you know, and I created a course called The Prosecutor's Playbook. And it's based on the <clears throat> criminal division for the Department of Justice evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And what it really does is it, it lays out the roadmap if you will, it creates a playbook that defense counsel and hospitals, health systems, physician practices looking to create a culture of compliance within their organization can use to understand what considerations a prosecutor has to take into consideration prior to a charging document, prior to entering into a settlement agreement whether to, you know, agree to a deferred prosecution agreement or something along those lines. And to Gina's point, that compliance program does so many important things and 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 the last thing Gina that I want to I want to leave our listeners with is this. <clears throat> Boy, my allergies have really I don't know what's going on today. I think I've done so many podcasts this week that it's just taking a toll on my voice but you know what here's what the office of inspector general says and and this is something that i don't think a lot of people have paid attention to if you go to oig.hhs.gov forward slash compliance forward slash physician forward slash compliance, hyphen, programs, hyphen, for, hyphen, physicians, forward slash. I know that was a lot, and I promise you I'll put that link into the podcast. This will take you to a page for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, and it's titled Compliance Programs for Physicians. At the very bottom of this page, you ready for this? It specifically says, with the passage of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, physicians who treat Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries will be required to establish a compliance program. Literally says that on the OIG's webpage. You know, and I've talked for years about, the, you know, the fact that this is, you know, OIG compliance is really kind of voluntary because it's at the discretion of the Secretary of Health and Human Services as to an enforcement date, you know, and we've not seen an actual enforcement date out of any uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services, right? Whether it was Sebelius or Tavener or Azar or uh, whoever the new guy is, um, um, Becerra. Um, and I know somebody in government's going to get mad at me when they, when they hear me say, yeah, that, that, that guy now I I knew it was Becerra, but you know, it, it, it's so important to understand that this is a requirement, Gina, this is, this is really not an option.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, but I will tell you, Sean, we have many practices that we've encountered where they have, they don't have one. And for some reason, they don't realize that they're supposed to have one, or they think that it's something. The other thing that happens probably more often is they have something, but nobody really pays attention to the program. Nobody really knows what's in it. It's either a printed manual that sits on the shelf somewhere gathering dust, or it's a set of policies that's on the practice's computer system, but nobody ever looks at it. So yes, it's required to have a program, but among those requirements, you actually have to make it program with substance, right? It's not enough just that's to right. say, oh, here's the manual that we didn't even fill in our name <laughs> on; It's just a form or something, sure. right? Yeah. But you actually need to have a program that works for your practice and you have to show that you're actually following it and that you're doing something with it.
0: Yeah, those are great points. And I tell people all the, all the time, you know, the only thing worse than not having a corporate compliance program is having one that's not being enforced and not being followed. Um, that that's probably the worst thing. That's worse than not having a compliance program. But folks, if you're in need of a corporate compliance program, I know Gina and her great team over at BMD would be more than happy to assist. Obviously, there's a reason why they call me the compliance guy. And if you need a compliance program, I'd be happy to engage and help you as well. Uh, And if you don't trust me, I'll refer you over to Gina and the great folks over at BMD. So this brings us to the end of our podcast today with Gina, with Gina Singleton, member in general counsel at Brennan, Manon & Diamond. I want to thank you, Gina, so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule, especially one day prior to Turkey Day. Thank you for being here.
1: You bet, Sean. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be here.
0: Happy Thanksgiving to you and to all of our listeners around the country. And believe it or not, we actually have listeners around the world. Thank you all so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with me and my special guest, Gina Singleton, today. As always, thank you on behalf of the entire TCG group. Remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Until next time. Take care. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy holiday season. And we'll be back with you next week.